Free Talk New Zealand podcast. Free Talk New Zealand is not a safe space, but a free space where we talk freely about whatever we find interesting here in New Zealand and the world. I'm your host, Emil, and with me I have our co-host, Joaquin. Today's guest is Tony Morley. He is a prominent human progress researcher and communicator uh, with more than a half a decade of experience doing this. He, he has contributed to a number of significant publications and is now set to develop the, the world's first children's book on human progress. He's uh, an Australian-Canadian dual national based in Australia and works primarily in energy policy and project management. Uh, the name of his uh, upcoming book is Human Progress for Beginners, 100 Stories of Human Progress and Why It's Better than it looks. Uh, he has a website that I, I'm aware of uh, at TonyMMorley.com, and he also, I don't know if he's the primary manager of, but he at, at least is certainly the, the most active uh, uh, contributor to the Human Progress Facebook group. So, Tony, uh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Tony, I, I um, so we, we, uh, we uh, met for the first time electronically, I don't know, a, a couple of months ago, uh, and, uh, and I'm uh, quite delighted to have, uh, to have met you, e-met e you, um, because I think in, in, a, uh, in, in a world that seems uh, increasingly going, let's say, the wrong direction, uh, I think you're the most glass half full person I've come across, maybe ever. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I myself uh, have have I've certainly thought of myself as a, a glass half full optimistic guy. I, I've had a good life, uh, have lived uh, in some different countries, had wonderful opportunities to study and live elsewhere. Um, but uh, I, I I can't help but notice uh, a few trends that that bother me. I'll go with. I'll, I'll mention just a few, uh, and then I, I'm hoping you can uh, you can cheer me up with some of uh, some of your your top points for why we shouldn't just concentrate on some of the things that I'll mention here. Uh, so, uh, COVID itself uh, that's one. COVID's a, a tough, certainly a challenge to to human flourishing. Uh, high inflation that I believe is uh, is coming. There's a lot of a uh, lot of money printing, you could say. Um, major threats to uh, to freedoms of speech. Uh, political leaders making endless unsustainable promises, but that's not new. Uh, a new wave of authoritarianism, authoritarianism, a certainly new new level of authoritarianism, and major threats to basic civil liberties, both governmental and cultural, lockdowns, forced vaccinations, travel restrictions, internet censorship, cancel culture, higher taxes, and increased regs, and that's just the few that came to my head. Um, but uh, why should we be optimistic, Tony? Yeah, that, that, that's a that's a really good question, and, and some of those trends which you highlighted um, are recently are are of, of a, a bit of a concern, and and I think I think it's really important to remember that progress forward is not progress completed, and also that um, uh, you know the the march of progress, if you will, is not entirely directly upward with no checks or balances or setbacks. So, um, to, I guess to start at the start and unpack a bit there, um, COVID has certainly been a disaster. Um, it's claimed a lot of lives. Most recently, you can see the the unfolding tragedy in, in India is claiming hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, and 
It's it's important to remember that COVID or a COVID-like situation is is not unprecedented. Um, you know, the Spanish flu claimed at least 50, 50 million lives, um, and and humanity has had this continuous struggle um, against infectious disease, and, and and we've been dealing with this at least since the you know the the late agricultural revolution, you know, the ten thousand years ago, um, and and a lot of this is is zoonotic. It's it's diseases we've contracted from animals, um, and and that all started as soon as we started essentially cohabitating uh, on a permanent basis with animals. When we were hunting and gathering, our, you know, our exposure frequency was just not significant enough to contract a lot of those diseases. But, um, you know, as soon as we started uh, moving into colder climates, um, as we moved up um, out of Africa and through the Fertile Crescent, we started to, uh, to, to then stretch our boundaries into Europe. And as we did that, we took the animals from the Fertile Crescent, pigs, cows, goats, sheep, and we literally brought them into our homes and started uh, eating and sleeping with them, um, you know, in, in really intimate, close proximity, you know, the whole family in one tiny hut the size of what might be, a, you know, a modern sized uh, master bedroom today. And so that's really when we started this continuous battle with disease. And uh, we, have, we haven't we have had very good um, uh, defenses or capacities to um, respond to uh, COVID-like coronavirus diseases um, until very, very recently, right? So if you look back, and, and I did some, some articles on, uh, you know, why... Um, why 2020 was the best year ever to survive the plague. Um, and, and so um, if you look at uh, the history of the Black Death, if you look at the history of not just the, the principal Black Death, the, the outbreak of the bubonic and pneumonic plague um, in Europe, but there were a succession of, um, of plagues and, and, and viral outbreaks, some of them we don't know a lot about, that claimed millions and millions of lives. And by a fraction of, uh, by, by, by a proportion of percentage of population, it was much, much worse than, than COVID. Um, imagine imagine a, you know, a similar sort of impacting situation where COVID takes out you know, a third of, of Europe's population, right? Um, it would be much, much more dramatic, right? So not to downplay the, the tragedy of COVID, COVID, but to say we've been up against much, much worse, and we've come out, um, we, we've come out of it on the other side. Now, if you look at if you look at 2020, uh, the you know the development of effective vaccines, also the capacity to develop PPE or to uh, personal protective equipment, or to have a, a, a you know a good robust medical response to be able to deliver oxygen, all of these things are. Um, are very very modern uh, innovations, and 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 uh, if you look at, um, for example, uh, the ability to so rapidly map the genome of the virus and then quickly start planning a an, an effective defense. If this similar coronavirus had hit fifty years ago, the the the, the um, impact would have been significantly more dramatic. So, um, as you mentioned, I work in in in, um, in energy project management. And I do a lot of troubleshooting. So problems come up and, and uh, often help uh, fix the problem. And I've always thought it was interesting when, um, for example, uh, you're on a major energy project and, uh, and there's some catastrophic problem that sets the project back or, or shuts the project down. And basically, it takes, uh, the, it takes a project from baseline operational to a massive deficit, right? All of a sudden, you're not making progress. And so then you... Uh, then you fix that problem, you get us back up to baseline. And I always thought it was funny that nobody on the project team seemed to think that that was a big win, because in their heads, we just went from a negative back to baseline. We didn't get 
ahead. And a lot of people see COVID in the same way, right? So they see, you know, even if we got rid of COVID tomorrow, even if someone miraculously um, created a, you know, a global patch that just instantly removed, you know, COVID from the planet, a lot of people would see that as a win, but they would see it as, okay, well, well now we've, we're just back to baseline, right? But what you have to see is that some projects, uh, some progress, back to baseline progress is really much more impactful than it sounds because you have to take into account not just that we've made progress against COVID, but that it could have been so much worse, you know, immeasurably worse. Um, and so there, there is some optimism there. We're, we're actually doing the best we can and the best we can is the best we've ever been able to do. Um, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we would have been, been in much worse shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, do think that that you're right. I don't have any sort of counterpoint. I do know that um, uh, I, I I don't like to say this because I'm certainly not a fan of the lockdowns, but I, I could say that uh, lockdowns are sort of uh, a luxury to be able to consider in the first place. I also don't like the the, the mass surveillance that, that is being done, uh, but um, for COVID or for any other reason, frankly. Uh, but but also the ability to be able to use apps that that sort of um, the crowd is using uh, for their day to day lives as they move around sort of know, know where people are uh, to the extent that it's only used for, um, uh, for let's say, uh, to, to reduce the spread of COVID. Uh, it's, it's certainly a luxury to be able to have the capability to even consider such a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and when, the, when the Australian government tried to push out their, um, you know, their COVID app, I, I was not a, a fan of that either. And, and less, on, less on principle, because, you know, uh, being tracked in, in air quotes, being tracked is, is uh, you know, it's something that is already prevalent because we give our data to a lot of private companies, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Google, whether it's, um, you know, ways for, for helping you on your drive. So there, you know, if, if the, um, you know, if the deep state or, or some sort of massive conspiratorial um, tracking agency wanted to find you, I mean, it, it's very silly. It, it would be very easy. They could just check your bank records and see where you last paid for petrol. It's um, my principal problem with with you know the the, the COVID app uh, out of out of Australia was that you know the government in a lot of uh, ways declined assistance from private sector um, organizations that had a ton of experience developing these sort of um, platforms and instead, um, you know, attempted to go it alone. As you can see, we had a you know, catastrophic um, census here in Australia just recently. And, and my first thought was, well, if you can't even run a census, what hope do you have in, you know, running a COVID app without leaking data or having some other kind of uh, catastrophic uh, invasion of privacy? So, so, I think there there can be value in these sort of um, pandemic tracking apps, and I think there has been a lot of value um, in some of the other places where they've done it in the world. Um, but it is important to remember that, um, and and it, it pains me to say this, but I mean the government is in some ways trying their best. They're 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 up against a kind of uh, an unprecedented in their lifetime situation, and 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 the first time we've ever had these sort of available technologies. So we're trying to fit a, a square peg in a round hole in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, there are there are substantial teething issues in trying to strike a balance between um, what is appropriate measures, whether we're talking lockdowns or whether we're talking surveillance, um, what are appropriate measures for curbing the spread of COVID and, and what is crossing the line? And then at the same time, trying to balance the risk assessment of, well, what is the cost benefit analysis of certain measures of, of um, you know, hygiene induced restrictions versus, um, you know, not taking any um, like a laissez-faire uh, attitude towards um, COVID management. 
isn't um, isn't one of the problems also with these kind of um, I mean just sticking to the problems of the of the surveillance thing as well is that you know you might say that it makes sense maybe for the um, maybe stopping the spread of a of a disease or something like that but um, you know the government what is it what is it called there's nothing as permanent as a as a temporary government program <laughs> then you know these kind of things tend to morph into something else and we already see that now with you know, it started off with a uh, tracing app and then, you know, that, that kind of thing morphs into a COVID pass. And the COVID pass started off with like, um, now it's it's just for travel, but then you see now it's kind of morphing into, well, you, you're going to need it in order to go into uh, all sorts of uh, venues, etc. And maybe now it's just for COVID and then, you know, you, you're going to add other things to it. Don't you think that's like technology is, and progress is good, um, but it's like a double-edged sword. It can be used for good, but it can also be used uh, for for bad, so to speak. Absolutely, and 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 so how those um, you know how those passports or how those surveillance um, applications are extended forward is really at this stage a matter of ethics, right? It's not a matter of technology. We well and truly have the technology to do it. If you look at what's going on in China with the um, social credit score, um, mm. there are no technological hurdles to overcome. Um, so I think it's really important to um, you know to continue to carefully and critically address, um, as you said, um, you know, what is an appropriate use and what is going too far. And, you know, is is something like a COVID, uh, COVID passport or whatnot going to snowball? Now, it's important to remember that, that uh, you know, pa- uh, COVID passport or sorry, um, a vaccination passport is not a new thing. I, I've had to have it when I, I did extensive work in PNG. Um, basically, I, you know, I wasn't allowed in the country unless I had a certain set of vaccinations for the project that I was on. So um, that is not um, that is not an, an, an unprecedented thing. Um, but you're right. And and I am I'm very cautious of um you know, anytime we sacrifice liberties, because if you look at the track record, um, when we give up liberties or when we open up privacy doors that were previously locked, they tend to be very difficult or impossible to get back or close. Um, and, uh, and that's why it's so important to incrementally look at these things and to be very uh, critical and very cautious of uh, what we sacrifice in the name of progress. Okay, uh, so I don't don't disagree with any any of that. I just uh, want to make sure. And I I, th- I think uh, I, I got us down. <laughs> we're talking about the uh, the uh, let's say the, um, uh, the the negatives of some of these technologies. Um, but but to, to get to less controversial ones, things like respirators. I don't think anybody. I don't know of anybody out there that says, "Oh, respirators have these <laughs> these these uh, these negatives. We need to watch out for." All right, so respirators. I I don't remember if it was you if, or if it was uh, Jan Norberg or, or one of these people that uh, that said, "Look, we didn't even have respirators when the when the influenza was going on." Uh, um, and and there were some other technologies that uh, uh, that that had uh, only existed in let's say recent decades or let's say last half a century. So so what other ways are we very lucky that that uh, that COVID happened in 2020 that are non-controversial? Uh, yeah, that's, that's something. A, sorry to that as well. I mean, like the uh, the sanitary conditions as well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so if we look at if we look at some of the striking differences between, say, um, you know, b- back when we had the Spanish flu versus today, it's it's not just that we didn't have vaccines. I mean, that is probably. Um, 
one of the most prominent um, examples. We didn't have the capacity to develop these kind of high-tech modern vaccinations or to do them with such great speed and accuracy. That is that it's not a miracle because that's no such thing. But but you know, metaphorically speaking, it's a miracle. It's absolutely astonishing. Um, but some of the some of the amazing um, technological capacity we have today has never been mentioned. For example, I, I wrote an article where we looked at. Um, why undersea cables, the data cables that lay on the on the ocean floor, had been so instrumental in fighting COVID? And you say to yourself, "Well, that mm. that that doesn't seem intuitive." But here's the thing: um, you know, if you go back beyond this, beyond the time of of the telegraph, communicating um, communicating data was uh, expensive. It was painfully slow. It was um, desperately inaccurate. And uh, and just just fraught with difficulties. Now today, um, you know, as soon as the the genome for the virus went live, it went across the whole world to every researcher um, instantaneously um, for no cost at all. Um, and and we're getting live updates, even even within Australia or within New Zealand, um, we're able to communicate over grass uh, great distances, uh, hundreds, thousands of uh, tens of thousands of kilometers instantly and effectively for free. Uh, com- completely classless, right? So, um, the best available data on COVID, um, how to keep yourself safe, um, you know, proper hygiene, the the updates on on how the virus spreads, um, is being communicated from the wealthiest person to the poorest person with uh, essentially near perfect uh, equality. Nowadays, if you have access to a mobile phone, even a cheap one, and most of the world does, um, you're getting almost daily live updates. So. Um, our ability to communicate the evolving situation has been invaluable and just really instrumental in, in getting ahead of uh, the situation. Um, and 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 respirators are another example. Whether it's um, whether it's respirators, whether it's um, a, you know a capacity to deliver oxygen, whether it's um, capacity to uh, innovate with uh, novel drugs to to um, uh, you know alleviate the symptoms of the, of the virus. Um, all of these things are are very recent, and and by recent I mean you know only in the last two decades at at best and and likely more likely in just the last 10 years so um the other the other thing as well is is we are a much wealthier world today uh versus uh 1950 1940 1920 um you know the the uh raised wealth of the world gives us a capacity to to do a lot of things that we would have never been able to do 20 30 40 50 years ago um fly vaccines in massive aircrafts all over the world or get dedicated teams of scientists to rapidly work on projects um you know the, the as a general rule the wealthier a country is or the wealthier civilization is the better we are to weather um catastrophe whether it's a whether it's a um a pandemic, or whether it's a natural disaster like a, uh, uh, you know, a, a cyclone, hurricane, um, earthquake, those sort of things, uh, they dramatically uh, impact the poor worse than the wealthy. And as the world gets wealthier, um, our our ability to weather the storm, if you will, improves dramatically. That's a, that's a really good point, and um, it causes uh, it, it raises one thing that I wanted to ask you as well, because. Um, I get the feeling that if we're talking about progress, a lot of people actually seem to think that we are getting poorer and poorer. And please correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, if you look at the number, number, both the number of people and the percentage of people that are in, in um, what is it, uh, absolute poverty, they've actually decreased, right? So there's not more people in numbers and there are a fewer percentage of the people that are in absolute poverty. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and by a 
quite a dramatic share. So if you go back, say, to the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, virtually everyone was in extreme poverty, right? So, um, so, so you know, it's roughly ninety percent of people were in extreme poverty, um, and and that is that is a hand to mouth existence where your next meal um, is uncertain, where medical care is essentially completely beyond reach, where where you have um, you know where your children were never vaccinated, where you're going to lose. Um, you know, every mother is going to lose roughly uh, half of her children, give or take, and she's going to have, you know, at least six pregnancies throughout her life, in which case she'll have, um, you know, very uh, high risk of complications or death as a result of pregnancy. Extreme poverty is is, is crippling beyond um, anything the sort of modern person living in a developed country, Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, United States, United Kingdom, you know, we really can't even comprehend life at, at the extreme poverty level. Now, unfortunately, there are still, um, you know, far too many people living in extreme poverty today, but the situation is getting so much better. You know, over the last um, couple of hundred years, we've driven extreme poverty down from roughly 90, 90% to roughly 10% today. Um, that is a that is an enormous um, uh you know, uh, cause for celebration. And we're also gradually raising the bar for what extreme poverty means. I mean, $2 a day um, is abysmal. You know, if we still have a high percentage of the world living on two dollars a day, that's that's no uh, that's no you know cause to say, hey, look, we've we've um, we've solved the problem, and, and you know, and and uh, no further progress required, right? As I've said before, progress forward isn't progress completed. Um, you know, GDP isn't everything, but it's a good indicator, um, and and GDP has skyrocketed, right? So, eighteen hundred in New Zealand, GDP was uh, roughly six hundred and fifty eight dollars per capita. Today it's it's roughly thirty six thousand. Um, life expectancy in eighteen hundred was thirty four years in New Zealand. Today it's eighty two years. Um, so things are getting much much better. Um, you know, just sticking with, uh, for example, our, our Australia New Zealand region, um, s- same as child mortality. Child mortality, or the, the number of children that are going to die before the age of five, has come down from roughly, uh, you know, roughly forty percent in eighteen hundred to you know zero point two percent today in the best countries. Um, globally, it's about four point five percent. But today, children born in the world's poorest countries are living longer, dying fewer than some of the children born in the world's wealthiest countries um, before the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, the whole thing about child mortality and life expectancy is interesting because if you look at those numbers, you said something in the 1800s, it was like around 30 and now it's 82 years or something like that. And actually, isn't the um, the fact that child mortality has dropped so much one of the, you know, I mean, it's not like people just turn 30 and they drop dead. It's more like there were so many kids that died at a young age um that kind of is why the um life expectancy back in the day was so much lower yeah so so uh, i i love the quote from from bill bryson in his book at home which is which is one of the greatest kind of introductions to pre-industrial life and i highly recommend it as an as an easy read and as an amazing example of um you know just how far we've come it's very hard to read that book um at home by bill bryson and not realize um that we're living in a in a state of just uh, you know, miraculous uh, wealth compared to uh, what our ancestors lived in just a couple of hundred years ago. So child mortality, as Vaslav Smil says, is an excellent, maybe the best indicator of overall progress because children are remarkably difficult to keep alive. Um, and that sounds mm. silly. You think to yourself, like, you know, I've got three kids myself, seven, four, <laughs> and two. Um, 
And, uh, and you think to yourself, well, you know, that doesn't seem that difficult. I've got a little baby and it doesn't seem that hard. It doesn't seem that hard because we are surrounded by a near miraculous degree of, you know, advancement that has given us this ability. So, you know, if you go back even a few decades, um, you know, universal uh, vaccination for the, you know, the basic um, critical um, early childhood vaccinations was like 20% globally. Today, it's 80%. Vaccination, clean water, and good nutrition are some of the, uh, if not the three most principal drivers of improving, um, you know, ch child survivability in those first five years. Um, a baby in the first, you know, in the first five years, uh, is just so much more fragile than um, than people give it, you know, give them credit for, um, and and particularly in in, in Australia, New, New Zealand, United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, we have um, medical systems that are just astonishing. And I'll give you an example, a bit of a personal example. Um, when my when my uh, oldest son was about two years old, he contracted a um, uh, a kidney inf uh, a kidney infection, uh, and we didn't understand what it was. He did a basic course of antibiotics and it helped clear the situation up. And then it came back really ferociously. Um, and uh, you know, it's, it's hard to tell why, but it did nonetheless. And he deteriorated really, really quickly. And one evening he was, um, you know, we had no idea what was going on in the GP we had seen previously. Um, it was early days. And so it was a bit uh, unclear exactly what was going on in the state of the infection. And uh, we, he was at the kitchen table he was bawling his eyes out and nothing in the world would make him happy. He, he didn't want ice cream. He didn't want cuddles. There was just no way to stop this baby from crying. And finally I picked him up and he just went completely limp. Like as if he just was dead. He just eyes closed, body limp. Um, mm. And you can feel that weight change just boom. And I immediately said, we're going to hospital. And uh, we chucked him in the car, took him to hospital. He went to triage. They said, baby's limp. Okay. Straight into, um, you know, first priority. They, they looked at him for probably um, they looked at him for probably an hour. They put him into uh, an MRI machine. They had to look at him. They popped him out, um, and and instantly knew what was wrong with him, and instantly knew um, uh, what to do. And they hooked him up to a bag of of, uh, of powerful antibiotics. And within twelve hours, he went from dead baby to perfectly happy, alive, playing little boy. That was a, you know, that, that baby was a dead baby 200 years ago. That was one of the child mortality losses that, um, that was so prevalent. Um, mm. But today, that, you know, the difference between life and death was a quick trip to the hospital, one overnight. They knew what was wrong. They fixed it immediately with no lasting complications. Like, that is astonishing. And that is just one story of tens of thousands of stories that happen every day in, in, you know, in countries around the world. It's mm, a fantastic one. I I, uh, I quite like your example. I mean, it's an unfortunate one to have to go through, but it, it's it's highly relevant. It it, it tells the story. Um, I I there's there's two things that come to my head every time uh, every every time I, I I think that people are only seeing are only thinking that we live in let's say the worst of times. Two things. Um, I. The, the first is that when you walk into the grocery store, just the abundance that's there, but particularly two items that, that stand out in my mind, that's avocados and bananas. These are short shelf life items that just wait for you to pick them up or not. And if you don't pick them up and nobody buys them, it's not on you. It's on the store that took the risk, right? Short shelf life, life items that are imported from generally Central America or Mexico, just waiting for you, right? I don't think people realize that this is, this is uh, not normal <laughs> and how good they have it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the the best example, and I'm not sure if you've heard of this example, but my favorite, and, and I wrote an article on, on this as well, is you know the 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 sixty five hundred dollar pineapple. Um, so so pineapples were one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive fruit in the entire world in the 1600s. Um, mm. People bought pineapples and never ate them. Most of the pineapples that were bought in Europe at the time um, simply weren't eaten because they were too expensive to eat. Um, people would rent a pineapple for a party so that their friends could gather around and stare at something so rare and expensive. And then that pineapple would be taken to the next party and the next party and the next party. Uh, and eventually it would rot. But uh, no one ate pineapples because they were literally too expensive. By the time you got a pineapple from um, South America, got it onto a hot, humid, disgusting ship and, and carted it the whole way across the ocean to Europe, the uh, the um, the attrition losses were, were dramatic and and uh, it was just so difficult to do. And it wasn't until we first started growing pineapple in, in Hawaii that we had any chance of bringing that cost down. So, so mm. as you said, a lot of these um, things which we take for granted today, whether they're pineapples or bananas or whether they're you know, strawberries at any time of season, this is the result of, of one of the, the greatest drivers of global progress, which is um, trade and the capacity to move goods cheaply uh, and easily. Like global trade logistics contributes more to your life than just about anything. 90% um, of everything you've ever owned has come in a, in a sea container at some point. Um, the containerization itself drove the cost of, of transporting goods down enormously. And that opened up the world um, to, to huge gains uh, in, in um, quality of life and living conditions. So you're 100% right. We, you know, we go into the grocery store we see the same kind of variety of products uh, year round as if um, as if they all grew in our own local country, right? But but they're behind the scenes. Um, there's this capitalist-driven, massive global trade market and global logistics system, which is um, you know serving you precisely what you would like at any any you know any time of the year you wish to have it. Um, people from 200 years ago, people from you know uh, the middle industrial revolution. Would would their minds would be boggled not only by the variety but also by the availability, the consistency of supply, and the fact that things like pineapples, which are delicacies, which you know um, you you may have to uh, you know go your whole life without eating, just dream of. Um, today you can buy them for three dollars at a local grocer. Pepper is another example. Spices, um, you know, salt and pepper have always been um, in, in in historical uh, times quite expensive. But I mean, the Romans, uh, the Romans paid their soldiers with pepper. They would have huge banquets where, in one particular instance, they had a, a massive silver tray loaded up with 150 kilograms of pepper, not so that people could eat, but so that they could all gawk at the astonishing wealth of having so much pepper in one place. Um, today, 150 kilos of pepper would just be a nuisance. All right. So uh, the the next the next example I want to that I, I like to uh, that I sort of go back to in my head from time to time when when we think it all is doom and gloom is uh, I saw a video a few years ago. I don't remember where I saw it. Some YouTube video, but but who did it? I don't remember. But it, it was a video where um, some I guess some news news agency or something or maybe a think tank, whatever it was. They they went on a street uh, of some major city in the U.S. and they were looked like New York, I think, and they they were asking people. If people, if, if these just random street passersby, if they would accept a million dollars to never use the internet again, and they couldn't find one person that would say yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> to put another way, these people 
um, are, consider themselves, whether they realize it or not, but certainly by their actions, they, they, they consider themselves more wealthy than a million dollars. I think that's a somewhat fair way to say it. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about this? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of great ways to look at that. Um, it, it seems funny to say, but a million dollars in the grand scheme of things over a whole lifetime is, is not really a lot of money. Um, if you got a million dollars when you were 18, um, even if you, um, uh, you know, spent it well, it, it wouldn't really go very far. Um, whereas, you know, the internet is is our primary mode of, of uh, communication. It's our primary mode of, of generating um, wealth. It's our primary mode of generating value and contributing to the world. Um, mm. And that and that has been such a dramatic shift in, in only really the last 10 years with the rise of the smartphone. Um, and and you, you'll have to forgive me for digressing here a little bit, but oh, okay. the rise of the smartphone um, really and, and the rise of the ubiquity of uh, mobile communication networks and mobile phone diffusion throughout the whole world, including in developed and, and even very poor countries, um, uh, and, and, and developing rather in, in even very poor countries, um, has contributed so dramatically to human progress. Now, um, mm. to, to, to make your point in a slightly different way with a personal example, uh, I, I once dropped into a very, very remote location in northern Papua New Guinea in the middle of the jungle um, at, a, at a quite high altitude, and we landed the helicopter at this tiny grass clearing that we could find. And we got out and we were immediately uh, met with, uh, with with some of the, the native um, aboriginals in Papua New Guinea. And um, and they were lovely, lovely people. And they came up to me and and, and we had an interpreter. And and, and these were people with, uh, you know, very little clothes on. They uh, they had no shoes on. And even more dramatically, they the, 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 the gentleman who I had spoke with had never worn shoes in his life. And his mm. foot was splayed out like a like a human foot would be um, in a hunting and gathering society. Um, you know, the, it was the foot of a human from 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 years ago. Mm. Absolutely astonishing, right? Mm. Um, these people could climb over anything. They could, mm. um, they could traverse any kind of terrain. This gentleman had a cheap mobile phone. He didn't own a pair of shoes, mm. but he had a mobile phone because mm. uh, access to the internet, access to uh, mobile communications networks is profoundly uplifting. And this is most, um, you know, most dramatically seen for the world's poor. So I did, I did some research in New Guinea um, looking at what impact mobile communications have on poverty. You know, what, what, what do these people get out of having a mobile phone? What is so important to them that they would prefer a mobile phone to, um, you know, a pair of shoes, um, which, you know, seems like a weird, uh, seems like a weird trade-off. But when you are living um, at subsistence level or when you're in extreme poverty, a text can be a massive difference. I met people who, um, what they would do was they would text the market in an adjacent town, and that, and, and, and especially people who lived high up on the mountains, and they would know what food was available, what, what was being sold at that market. So they didn't have to transport goods, which is expensive, time-consuming, and just laborious. Um, they didn't have to transport food from their gardens down to the market that wasn't going to sell. Mm. Access to a mobile phone in a, in a developing or a poor country also means instant access to emergency help, not necessarily from the government. But if you have a mobile phone, you can call on friends, you can text family or, or, or alliances when, when you are in need, you can get aid, you can find job opportunities, you can get education, you can transfer money, you can do all these phenomenal things that were you know, beyond the reach of the world's poor for nearly all the history of humanity. 
the internet makes a massive difference in, in poor countries. Um, you know, I often say, if you, if you want to give uh, a poor person in a developing country just one thing to change their life, a cheap mobile phone would be it. Um, a bicycle might be the next thing. Um, mm. but, uh, but you're right. Today, you know, the, the, the smartphone has essentially become our portal to generating wealth and experiencing the world and, and creating a lot of enjoyment and value both in our own lives and in other people's lives. And the internet gets a bit of a bad rap for that um, in the sense that uh, you know, you'll see all this doom and gloom mongering of we're becoming addicted to our phones, we're, we're um, you know, we're, we're spending too much time online or we're becoming disconnected from, you know, the, the, the real human communication. But, but, but if you balance those negatives on the scale of, uh, of balance and you add the positives to the left-hand side, uh, the positives outweigh the negatives by many orders of magnitude. Um, you know, here we are, you and I communicating in crystal clear, high-definition audio over an ocean with no lag at all. That is the stuff of gods from, you know, a hundred years ago. Mm. Very well put. Uh, very well put. I, um, you know, I, as I said, I, I spent a good, a good chunk of my life traveling all over the world uh, internationally quite frequently, like once a month. Uh, and I'd go to two, three countries, sometimes two, three continents in the same month. Uh, and so I, I spent a, a good little bit of time in, um, in, in sub-Saharan Africa as well. Uh, and, and so I've certainly, uh, you know, I've been in the middle of nowhere, Ethiopia in the middle of nowhere. I, I don't, I don't mean in the middle of, I don't mean Ethiopia and some of these other countries in the, are in the middle of nowhere. I mean, in the middle of nowhere within the country. So, you know, far, in, uh, let's say rural environments, right? Um, uh, uh, Tanzania, Uganda, and, and, and I, I've seen, I've seen the, uh, the smartphones. It seems just about everybody has a smartphone. And I was really encouraged by this. I later learned that the it seems the uh, the, the vast majority uh, that tend to be used tend to be hand-me-down phones from from first world countries. I was really encouraged encouraged by that because that's you know they're benefiting from trade. Maybe they don't get the 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 newest iPhones at the same time as first world countries do, but they're at least getting iPhones. Uh, and then I I found a, a lovely little article. So far, I think it's my favorite little article or at least uh, data point, uh, a graph on uh, humanprogress.org, uh, a website uh, to, to the audience, to the listeners. That's, that's a website uh, for which uh, Tony contributes. Uh, and, and, and this page was, um, was something like, the, the chart showed something like um, um, that, that uh, sub-Saharan Africa has more smartphones per, let's say, 100,000 people or whatever. Uh, or, or at least an equal amount. Uh, in 2011, had the same uh, amount uh, that the U.S. had in in 2005, or something like that. And, and I thought that's that's <laughs> this is wonderful. This is wonderful. Uh, you can you can literally see uh, it, one little data point, but but a very important data point showing that that even even the region of the world that is that is uh, that, that is uh, let's say most most impoverished it is on its way out. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, well, no doubt that that, that Africa is on its way out of poverty. It, it still has a long way to go, and there's there's sure. still huge, huge room for improvement. Um, uh, and we can touch on that a bit later on, on why mm -hmm. why the, the the whole concept of progress forward isn't progress completed, and why there's still so much work to do, and what we can do about that. But but looking, you know, just just touching on on mobile communications again, um, you know, there there was a book um, there was a book written called. Um, uh, 
uh, what is it called? Oh, bear with me here. Um, the birth of plenty. Uh, oh, we just okay. we just read the book. It's a great book, um, and and it touches on these sort of four principal drivers of of human progress, right? Um, scientific rationalism, um, capital markets, uh, ease of uh, transport, being able to move things uh, cheaply and uh, easily, uh, including trade uh, under the under that, and communications. Um, communications is is one of the principal pillars of driving human progress. And when it comes to mm. countries like Africa, if we talk, we we jump back and we talk about um, child mortality again. You know, there are links between being able to communicate effectively and reductions in child mortality. Right, mothers who are able to send a text to a, a midwife or a GP and say, you know, my baby is doing this or my baby is sick and these are the symptoms, um, and being able to to get a, a an, an instant response back with with good um, scientific advice um, is is invaluable. Right, um, mm. if you look at um, if you look at a very very cheap solution, right, oral rehydration therapy. So so this is basically just giving dehydrated babies who who maybe have diarrhea from either um, you know contracting illness or, uh, you know, from, from poor water or communicable disease. Um, the whole concept of, of giving babies salt, sugar, and clean water together in a solution, um, you know, was an absolute game changer. It, it saved at least 70 million lives since its introduction, um, you know, around the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s. So, so um, you know, basically, um, you know, being able to get a text message back that says, you know, give your baby, you know, some sugar, some water, some salt, mix it all together, mm. um, you know, or, 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 uh, or those particular symptoms seem uh, especially bad. You need to get your baby to a clinic as quickly as possible. Or on the flip side, you know, those symptoms don't seem so bad. They're probably indicative of this. It's okay to keep the baby at home. Just, um, you know, just, just do this or just do that. That saves the mother, uh, you know, a, a laborious and expensive trip into the city. Um, so, so communications are our principal driver of, of both wealth but also life expectancy, just improving the lives of the world's poorest people. The, the more cell phone towers that go up, the better. I mean, that's it, the, the bottom line. Eventually, the world will be covered in a complete um, end-to-end either satellite constellation grid of, of mobile internet or, or, uh, or mobile communications. Anywhere there's a human living, there should be, uh, they should have access to, uh, to a cell tower. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll throw in that... Um... They, that when when people have uh, mobile, they get they tend to get mobile access to mobile banking. Um, so I, I spoke with you. I don't know a couple months ago. I, I mentioned that uh, one thing that was exciting to me that w- was when I was in Uganda. I think Tanzania as well. Um, the I, I saw people exchanging value with their with their cell phones. And um, so what what I remember what it was called was MTN mobile money, but also in Kenya there's something that started called uh M-Pesa. M-Pesa, yeah. Pesa being I think the Swahili word for for money. Um I don't I know they formalized it now. Um it, it, I don't know if it if now when they do that it's actually a government currency. But but what I do know is it certainly began. It was just uh people buying mobile credit. Uh, right, top up. You can top up your minutes, your data, your 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 text messages, SMS, uh, and then and then uh, and then you can use it as money. Like, hey, you know, uh, well, I uh, need some top up anyway. So it, it, you have a phone, I have a phone. There there aren't there aren't there is no PayPal yet, or there wasn't back in the early two thousands. Not in sub-Saharan Africa, as far as I know. And so they just use it for money. And I, I think you told me that the, you saw the same thing in Papua New Guinea as well, right? 
Yeah, and the, and the great thing about it as well is it's a, it's a non-fiat currency, right? That only appreciates in value because as the cost of, of, of um, for example, in, in, as you said, in, in Papua New Guinea, um, you get these scratch cards, these tiny little, um, mm-hmm. about half the size of a business card, and you'd scratch off the, co- uh, the, uh, the, the covering and you'd get a code underneath. And I'd use them myself when I was there. Mm-hmm. And you'd insert the code in your phone and it would give you a certain value in dollars, right? So if the scratch card had 10 Kina um, worth of value on it, then when you would scratch it off, you would get that value, uh, that dollar value in, in mobile credit, right? But as the cost of credit fall, as the cost of mobile access falls, the value of the of the actual credit on the card goes up ever so slightly. Um, but but it's also because because it's 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 uh, it's uh, you know it's fungible in the sense that that you can transfer these these uh, these cards to anyone and so long as they're not scratched off they maintain their value and they're worth what is on there right so so it's a very effective means of of financial communication um, and 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 this is you know this has been used all over the world where where the you know where poor countries have access to digital communications um, but but in Africa in particular mobile banking um, and the diffusion of mobile banking is another great sign of progress because everybody needs a bank account. Um, it's a it's a secure uh, it's a secure way to store funds and transfer funds, and it also opens a, a huge world of opportunity for um, being able to do micro transactions, whether it's to do micro um, uh, financial transactions for loans um, to get credit, or whether it's to you know to pay for things in very small increments. Um, you know, it, it also gives women a lot of power, right? Because mm. you can put aside uh, money that is essentially yours um, and is out of the reach of, of your husband in a lot of uh, uh, particularly places, very poor places in the world where women are still struggling to get um, full capacity of their own autonomy. Being able to bank privately is, is enormously valuable. Mm, mm. Tony, uh, I wanted to ask you about the, the statement you made, you know, the progress forward is not progress completely. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so 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 uh, one of the greatest books for kind of laying out that thesis is is it's a, is Factfulness by uh, by Hans Rosling and and Ola and, and Anna Rosling, um, who who are um, who are just you know brilliant people and they've done a ton of work in in uh, human progress communications, particularly looking at you know the the global ignorance of of the state of the world, right? So they they would say they're not optimistic, they would say they're factful, um, and and in that breath they would say. Um, that there are there are things that are going very much wrong with the world, and there are things that are going right. Um, and it's not about finding you know a, a cheery, optimistic rainbow to look at to to distract ourselves from the you know the things that are going wrong. It's to find the fact based uh, position of of the world, right? So what is actually happening? Now now we can be optimistic. Because at the moment, we can look at the great scheme of things, the, the, the vast balance, and we can look at everything that's going wrong and everything that's going right. And, you know, if you look at it critically, you can say, hey, look, on the whole, even though, uh, as, as you opened this meeting, you know, even though there are some things which are really cause for alarm, um, on the balance, uh, more is going right than is going wrong. But that doesn't mean, uh, that doesn't mean we're finished. And so when I when I started in human progress, I, one of the key things that I was left with, right? So I studied the thesis. Um, you know, I, I met a lot of my peers and, and, and started, you know, working amongst them. But one of the things that was left uh, really largely unanswered was the call to action. It was like, okay, I understand the thesis. The world is getting better. There's been lots of progress in in in, uh, in a lot of these great fields. You can go to, for example, our world and data, and you can just explore all the uh, you know and the amazing graphs that are showing 
dramatic progress over time. But you're left with the with the question, okay, I understand the thesis. What do I do next? You know, and and my answer to that is um, there's a combination of things. Um, we can do things individually that help, uh, but we can also make good election decisions, and we can help make good policy decisions based on what things are driving human progress forward, right? Um, you know, at the most fundamental level, uh, things like, uh, you know, capital markets, the ability to trade, um, openness in the world, these are things that, um, you know, dramatically improve human progress. And, and when we vote and support and uh, encourage policies that uh, make more of that happen, we do things, uh, we contribute ever so insignificantly to um, upping the bar of human progress just a little tiny bit. But no, the, the, the idea that, um, and I'm often confronted with this, the idea that uh, I'm some sort of um, uh, dreamy, optimistic, uh, you know, person who's just lost in the illusion of, of capital progress uh, is, is a fallacy. That's not the case at all. I mean, I, myself, more than most, have a really clear picture of what is going wrong in the world, um, but also what forces are, are, are uh, slowing or reducing or reversing um, that wrongness and, and bringing more progress into the world. And my whole goal as a progress communicator is to essentially say at a fundamental level, um, you know, the world used to be quite rubbish. Um, it's got a whole lot better. These are the forces that have made the world a whole lot better. If we do more of this and maybe do a bit more, we can, you know, improve the lives of, of many more people, right? It's not that it's not that I'm satisfied that people in Denmark and Finland and Australia and New Zealand are leaving, leading pretty good lives. It's that, you know, I want all Africans to have a standard of living similar to all New Zealand. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, like, if you were to uh, meet someone like Greta Thunberg and, uh, you know, the famous You Stole My Future speech, because you, you have a more positive... I mean, you said don't call me an optimist, but you do have a more positive view of the of the future than many other people, and certainly more than her. And you know, with that statement that her future was stolen, what would you uh, what would you like to to tell well, her? Well, well, yeah, it, <laughs> it, it, it's a bit unfortunate that that we give uh, Greta um, s- such a considered voice. Um, you know, it, it's important that that we debate and discuss. Mm-hmm these issues, issues of climate change, issues of sustainability, um, rationally. Uh, however, <laughs> we should do so um, from a position of, of really comprehensively understanding the subject and, and being able to articulate that um, well. And I think when it comes to climate change, when it comes to that, you know, that quotation, you know, you've stolen my childhood, um, you know, people like Greta have a childhood because of progress and growth. Mm. And the idea that we should grind growth and progress to a halt. Um, Really, I would ask, you know, who you would like to remain poor? You know, which part of the world um, do you believe uh, shouldn't have access to human progress? When it when it comes to um, when it comes to fossil fuels and, and, um, you know, uh, producing um, uh, hydrocarbons and and, and as as a consequence, carbon dioxide um, and and uh, pushing that into the atmosphere, we have used that tool to really drive human progress forward. So this is one of the places where, where I disagree with, with Elon quite considerably, which is, you know, in the sense that, um, you know, fossil fuels were the, were the, were the dumbest mistake or the, the dumbest experiment that humans have, have ever made. And, and I fundamentally disagree with that. Fossil fuels are like a geological trust fund 
or that we have borrowed from um, or, or, you know, or withdrawn from in order to invest in the progress of human civilization. Now, th- that if you are looking uh, at the world through just a, say, 100-year time span, so let's say we just want to get to um, uh, you know, the next 100 years, then um, burn all the fossil fuels you want. Go for big. It doesn't matter um, because you're only looking at the next 100 years. If you look at civilization on a 5,000-year time span, um, then we have to create solutions not only for you know, uh, negating catastrophic climate change, but also for, um, you know, for just generating, uh, capa- generating modes of, of producing energy that are uh, you know, indefinitely sustainable, right? Um, so hydrocarbons are, are, uh, are finite. Um, even though we keep uh, improving our capacity to develop more and find more reserves, which is outstanding, by the way, um, but eventually over the span of hundreds or thousands of years, um, that's, you know, we're not going to be able to do that indefinitely because those resources are geologically finite. So we will need um, renewable um, resources um, to keep civilization going in the long run. Now, the difficulty with the, the, uh, the hyper environmental movement that sort of says, Hey, we need to, we need to grind all, um, hydrocarbon production and utilization to a halt essentially immediately, right. Within the next 10 years is a, it's give or take basically impossible. Um, and if you want a really good deep dive read into that, um, uh, energy and civilization by Vaslav Smil or, or great, um, uh, great Energy Transitions, uh, Grand Transitions by Vaslav Smil. Um, Vaslav is a, is a Canadian writer um, and researcher. He's a professor. Um, he's Canadian-based. Um, and he is essentially the, the, the considered one of the world's, if not the world's, expert on, on energy transitions and, and energy uh, production and utilization. He's a brilliant mind. Um, and I, I've had the, the privilege to, to chat with him a little bit. But um, but you can get a really clear picture at how much energy we use. I mean, in Australia, for example, uh, roughly 75, 80% of energy production is, is fossil fuel based. Uh, to, take, to take that and, and uh, push it to, to zero is very, very challenging. Um, you know, and so, so, so to ask Greta is essentially, you know, we in the West and uh, in, in developing countries, we've, we've used a huge amount of uh, energy from the geological trust fund to get uh, ourselves to where we are. And that includes, um, that includes the ability to make solar panels and wind turbines. Uh, let's be abundantly clear. Um, without fossil fuels, there are no renewable uh, energy technologies because you can't you can't skip a step. You can't go from um, pre-oil and gas, um, pre-oil and gas and coal, and then just make the jump to um, wind turbines and, and solar panels. It's, it's, it's literally impossible, right? So every grand energy transition builds on the back of the one that came before it, right? Oil and gas and coal uh, was built on the back of, of um, biological materials, burning wood, burning uh, plant material, right? So, so, uh, I'm deeply concerned by this uh, idea that that uh, you know poor countries who um, want to put um, oiling uh, oil and gas or want to put um, uh, coal-fired power plants online should uh, opt to not do that to limit their growth or to keep their people in poverty for the sake of the climate. It's a deeply selfish um, thing to ask. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like if you were to, I mean, it's not just about keeping people poor. It's also, if you do that in the industrialized world, you're going to make those parts of the world 
poor as well. And and I wonder how much of that comes back to the fact that there's like there's two ways of, of measuring poverty. One is when you talk about the I guess the absolute poverty and you have to talk about poverty levels, but it seems like a large faction of the world actually talks about poverty just in relative terms. And if you just mm-hmm. talk about it in relative terms, of course, lowering the living standards of everyone is not necessarily a problem if you if you make it more equal. Um, have you encountered that um, argument at some point? Yeah. So so um, you're right. There's there's a, there's a lot of different ways to measure poverty, but 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 there's there's also a disconnection, and this exists in the in the um, highly developed countries as well. There's this disconnection between I have this many dollars in my account, or I earn this many dollars annually. Um, therefore I am or am not poor. So there was, there was this great study done in America where they looked at what it means to be poor, um, in, you know, in America and today being, you know, being below the poverty line in America, you still have a fridge, you still have a, a, an inexpensive car. Uh, you have a cell phone, you have a television, you have a, a laptop, you have a stove, you have indoor, um, climate control, whether it's heating or cooling. So, um, being poor, um, 200 years ago was, was a night and day difference, right? Not only did they not have money in their bank account that often, um, people pre-industrial revolution, you know, didn't actually, uh, exchange in, in, uh, in coins and, and dollars, um, uh, because it just, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of money in the, in the greater supply in the greater economic supply. And so, um, not only were they essentially f- cash poor, they were also, um, amenity or living standards poor, right? What we're doing today, um, in a lot of the, the, uh, what we would consider poor countries is we're driving up those living standards so that even people who are still kind of cash poor are experiencing better and better quality of life. Um, and this is, this is especially true in, in places like, uh, fully developed countries like Australia, New Zealand, um, Canada, United States, United Kingdom. Um, these are places where you can live below the poverty line, but still have, uh, you know, a, a standard of living that would have made you, um, you know, royalty 200 years ago. Um, and that, that in itself is, is, uh, worth considering. Yeah, that's again like r- great point, and it just brings back. I don't, I forget who, what comedian said it, but um, he said that there's no, uh, there's no poverty in in the United States where there's no, uh, people aren't really suffering here because this guy had seen a homeless guy feeding birds, and he said if there really was, you know, a dire situation in the U.S., you wouldn't see a homeless guy feeding birds, you wouldn't see any birds, you know, so people would just hunt hunt the birds. But uh, I wanted to touch on the other thing that you you kind of touched on as well, and it's this thing about. Um, in the West, people are really focused on the what they call, you know, the the one percent where all the wealth is accumulated, but they don't realize that on like on a global scale, they are probably the one percent themselves. Well, not probably, definitely. Um, yeah. You know, and, and there's this idea that if a few if a few um, tech billionaires, you know, amass great fortunes, that somehow that that that's detracting from the greater experience of everyone else, right? Um, you know, the way that that capitalism has trended over the last few decades, is it's certainly made um, the top tier much, much wealthier at a much faster rate. With that being said, it's hard not to recognize that the bottom half continue to lead better and better and better lives. Um, even though, um, you know, even though, say, the, 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 the income uh, may not be climbing at the same rate, the, the, the quality of life or the abilities and amenities that we have at our disposal have improved so dramatically, and they're still improving. Um, 
in some respects, we're at the top of the S curve in developed countries for some things. For example, you know, mobile mobile or, or data communications, right? There, it's getting to the point where, um, you know, in in these um, uh, top top high level developed countries where uh, mobile data is basically free uh, or 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 uh, if, sorry, not free, but uh, essentially unlimited and very very inexpensive. Um, it can't get much better than that. We can drive the cost down to practically nothing and and still have unlimited um, ultra high speed communications. And it doesn't need to get much better than that. Um, when I think about um, what it means to keep pushing progress forward, um, I think it's important to realize that, you know, even though we're we're getting to the top of the S curve on some things uh, in in highly developed nations. We can still bring all of the uh, all of the developing uh, world with us and improve their standard of living. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, oil uh, and energy, and I, you mentioned that you you work in this area a little bit. Um, it, I have that right, right? I'm not misinterpreting. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Uh, I, I remember one thing from Alex Epstein's book. You probably, it, I, I sus suspect you might've read it, uh, the moral case for fossil fuels. Uh, he mentioned that, uh, if I remember the number correctly at the height of the, the whaling trade back where people, when, when people used to on mass scale, uh, hunt whales, uh, there were, there was something like, uh, Again, double check me. I might have the number wrong, but it was something like four thousand whales were were being killed annually, and it, it was actually the fossil fuels that saved the whales, uh, because um, as it just so happens, the uh, fossil fuels in the beginning, or uh, specifically the uh, petroleum. Um, correct, correct me if I'm wrong. This is your area, not mine. Uh, it, it was used for. Uh, it wasn't used to power motored vehicles because those weren't around yet it, it was for lighting it was the kerosene for the lighting and is and, and so that replaced uh you know whale oil that <laughs> it was whale oil that that powered the the lights of london before before uh before uh fossil fuels took over and 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 gave the whales a break yeah and that that's that's a bit of a contended um thesis but but there's a lot of evidence to support that and whales whales um provided um, a great deal, particularly sperm whales, um, provided a, a great deal of value, uh, not just for oil, but also for meat, also for um, various lubricants. And the you know the bones uh, were used in everything from whips to dress stays. So mm. so whales, um, you know, humanity for for ninety nine percent or more than ninety nine percent of of all of our existence as a species has taken everything we need to conduct the business of daily life from other plants and animals. We didn't really synthesize anything. Um, and it's only until very, very recently that we've been able to, um, A, get a lot more and a lot varied, uh, a lot greater var variation of metals from the ground, and also B, to, to synthesize things that, that uh, are combinations of other components that would have never existed in the natural environment, right? So, um, you know, synthetic fabrics replacing um, cotton and wool and that sort of thing. So, so um, the fossil fuel industry uh, drove the cost of light down dramatically, right? So, uh, pre-industrial life was was a very, very, very dark world. Um, you know, to quote, um, to, to, to roughly quote um, Bill Bryson, you know, if you open your refrigerator door when you go into the kitchen in the evening, uh, you open your refrigerator door at night and you call forth more light than was available <laughs> to an entire family 
um, in pre-industrial life. Like, you know, the, the, the light of a fridge was well beyond the light of all the candles that would be available to a family or, or tallow candles. Um, wax candles, pre-industrial wax candles made from beeswax were just way too expensive mm. um, for, for average families. So, so, so to put this into gripping perspective, now I'm not, I'm not sure if you've ever come across this, but uh, you know, in 1304, uh, the 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 cost of a million lumen hours of light, right? If you think uh, you think uh, uh, you know a, a candle or a torch has a certain uh, lumen, certain number of lumens, whether it's a uh, hundred, five hundred, thousand, or whatnot. Um, you know, a million lumens of light uh, in 1304 would cost forty thousand pounds. Um, if you scale that forward and you look at sort of the, you know, the, the, the end of the last study in 2005, 2006, you know, you're talking about just a little over two pounds for a million lumen hours. Of blood. <laughs> so, 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 you know, the, the, the great energy transition from, um, uh, fr- from uh, using animals for energy to then using coal for energy to then using oil and gas has um, has not only made uh, energy much more available and ubiquitous, but it's also made it much, much cheaper. And again, energy, uh, uh, as I've said many times, um, a, a, you know, abundant and inexpensive energy is the keystone to human progress. Um, after scientific rationalism, basically nothing else does more to drive human progress forward. Every, everything you can think of, whether it's uh, cheap and easy communications, whether it's trade networks, whether it's cargo ships, it all tracks down to cheap, available, ubiquitous energy. Mm. Mm. Well, uh, I... I feel like I'm doing our audience a huge disservice to to end it, but we also we need to make it make sure it's within a reasonable time because the the uh, the, the shorter amount of time, the shorter duration of of an episode, the more people are likely to listen to all of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so may, maybe uh, maybe we'll have you again in the future. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, thanks a lot. So 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 um so we're working on a book. We're going to hopefully have that um, uh, produced in the next sort of twelve to twenty four months, and we'll hopefully get that into publication. But uh, but there's a lot to do in, in steering the 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 culture of human progress and to get people um, geared up and and uh, you know to accept the thesis to understand the thesis and to get out there and, and change the world on their own and, and to to you know make the world a better place essentially and I hope that uh, that we can inspire a lot of uh, families to 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 see how far we've come as a species and to be optimistic and to be encouraged to uh, get out there and and essentially make the world a better place. Okay. And uh, am I mistaken in, in that you're, you're crowdfunding or, uh, the, the, the book, the upcoming book? Yeah. So we have, um, we, we, um, so to talk a little bit about the work, uh, about the book before we finish. So yep. we, um, so I came up with the idea to create a, a children's book on human progress. Um, I, I took my kids into a, a bookstore and the, and, you know, going back to Greta, there were all these climate change books. They had a whole shelf of them all facing out. And it was all about plastic pollution and, you know, imminent climate catastrophe. And, um, well, you know, well, those are real issues. I thought to myself, you know, I poked around and like, there is no book saying that things are getting better or that things used to be worse and they're better now. And so I went home and I did some research and and I realized no one has ever written a book about uh, human progress for children. It's it's never been done. No one has ever said, Life used to be terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's better now. It's yeah. going to get better in the future if we keep at it, right? Um, I'll, it, I'll, I'll add to that. I've found plenty of books that, that push a good bit of activism, trying to get children to the streets, so to speak, or literally. <laughs> that's like the uh, Greta books, right? I mean, that whole thing was about she inspired everyone to 
you know, get out of school and go and do activism and do all these sorts of things. Right? So we, so we want some positive news from you. Please, please continue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. We want, uh, For our like, children. Uh, uh, optimism, activism, or human progress activism, and what mm. would that look like? Yeah, that's that's a great question. It reminds me of family relationships that I had when I was a lot younger, you know, with, with my cousins who who were the same thing. They were the Gretas of the world, right? They were out there. They were like, in order to make the world a better place, we have to tear down the machine and we have to, um, you know, we have to ride and we have to protest. And 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 one particular cousin was always out there in, in the protests, being arrested and, and and causing a scene down with capitalism, down with the, you know, down with the one percent. And, um, you know, and we got to do something about climate change and, and this, that, and the other. And my opinion is, yeah, I'm with you hundred percent. Let's make the world a better place. Let's uh-huh. um, make more sustainable energy. Um, you know, the best way to do that, go and get an engineering degree. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> I know. Go, go, go and go and build, you know, get a job in a factory, go and build some <laughs> wind turbines, go and, you know, right. go, go and build some gearboxes. You know, we need a lot of great things, build vaccines, get cheap energy, invent new ways of communicating, develop new apps for transferring money. I mean, all of these things, they're going to improve people's lives. Um, there's a place for activism, 100%. We need free speech. We need the uh, the right to uh, assemble freely and to protest things that are unjust. Don't get me wrong. I'm with you 100%. But at the end of the day, um, I want kids, I want my kids, I want other people's kids to grow up and say to themselves, like, yeah, the world is a better, the world needs to be a better place. It's my job to do something about that. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to look at one of the root causes of human progress and I'm going to pick one and I'm going to drive it forward, right? Whether it's getting a job in nursing, whether it's, um, you know, becoming a teacher, whether it's becoming um, someone who who develops uh, machinery. I mean, the, a chemist that uh, I can't, I can't list all the jobs that go on for, for ages, but it's, it's less about having a specific job. It's more about going out out there and, and and doing something that is going to make the world a better place um, from a human progress perspective. Now, now, so so when we set out to to do this book, we approached a, a number of publishers. I approached a number of publishers and I said, "Hey, look, I've got a great idea. We want to do a book um, where we we tell kids about the amazing progress we've made, what's driven it forward, and how they can keep it going." And and basically every publisher came back and said, "That's a terrible idea." What? Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've been turned down by like more than 30 different publishers. And That's the insane. ones who would take the time to talk to me said, um, sure, it's very, very risky. Maybe we would um, maybe we would look at it, but we need to see a finished book. So ha- having not been mm. a children's book author ever um, and mm-hmm. never dealt in illustration, um, I got into this boot cycle loop of talking to illustrators who wanted a publisher, talking to publishers who wanted a finished product, and, and no one... Um, being able to help and also hitting a major funding wall. So, so we, you know, we originally thought it might take something like 10,000 us dollars to get this illustrated. And it turns out it's going to take like at least five times that much. Um, so we've been lucky and, and it's taken me a year just to get the, the, the uh, foundation of the project in place, but we've been lucky to raise a little bit of funds through crowdfunding. Um, so there was a GoFundMe and it's raised about 50%, um, basically 4,000 of 8,000, uh, uh, dollars. Australian dollars. Um, Australian but dollars, okay. Uh, but we've also got um, two small grants coming through, which will help, which are um, from the Effective Altruism Community and from Emergent Ventures, which is um, Tyler Cohen's um, project. Uh, and that will help as well. And that will at least mm. get uh, get us a real good shot at putting the book together and getting it um, in front of publishers. Um, we've got some people who are very sympathetic to the project, who are prominent in the human progress space. Uh, Stephen mm-hmm. Pinker, Johan yep. Norberg. 
yeah. uh, the team at uh, uh, humanprogress.org and, and uh, a fair few others. And, uh, and we're very, very thankful for that. Um, I should stop saying we, it's essentially just me uh, and, and a very, very talented illustrator. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so it, I would encourage people to check out the project. It's called Human Progress for Beginners. Um, get behind it if you have the capacity to do so. Um, if you can't afford to donate, I, uh, don't mind at all. Just um, please help by sharing or, uh, or commenting, get the word out there. Maybe someone can, uh, can help us out. And at the end of the day, the more hype we generate, the more likely we are to get a publisher. For me, this is a, a lead loss project or a, a, at very best a break-even project. Um, it's, it's more about basically fulfilling the mission of being able to uh, get parents to sit down with their kids and open a book that, uh, that, that gives them some hope in the world. Okay. I'm seeing at, at your website, Tony M Morley, M O R L E Y for the audience.com. Um, I'm, I'm seeing that it's, it's the most recent, uh, post. So it's, it's there. If you click it now, um, if you hear this a year from now, it'll be further down somewhere. You have to search for it probably. But uh, anyway, um, I, so, but, but on the main page there, I don't see a, uh, a link to where people could donate. Where, where could they donate? If they so down at the bottom, there's a, um, there's a GoFundMe account um, attached there um, only because that was sort of the, the easiest thing to do just to, g- to gauge if there was um, any interest. And we've had a lot of great feedback. And, and you mentioned earlier the, the Human Progress Facebook group, which, is the, uh, which I'm the principal admin for. So that's another great place to, um, to find. Find, um, uh, to find great content or to uh, get updates on this particular project, they're all going to show up on that page. Okay, I see it now. It's it's within the the article uh, yep, down absolutely. down at the bottom of it. Okay, thank you for that, and I'll commit to giving a hundred bucks. Oh well, thanks so much. I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. and every every little bit helps. At the end of the day, um, illustration costs you know li- literally hundreds of, of U.S. dollars per page, and there's going to be a hundred illustrations in the book. So, um, so we're we're doing our best, and uh, and we'll see what we can we can we can make. But um, but yeah, thanks a lot for having me. I think uh, I think we can talk more specifically in the future about uh, more uh, uh, more specific aspects of human progress. But just generally, things are getting a, a lot better, and uh, it's better than you think it is. Mm. All right. So that is Tony Morley, uh, an activist, uh, sorry, an active uh, human progress uh, uh, promoter. And you can find him on his website at TonyMMorley.com. Thank you very much, Tony, for for speaking with us today. Cheers. Thanks a lot. for listening.